Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleague and Power Hour producer, John Pop. John, how are you today? Oh man, Jack, I am doing doing great despite it's very warm again here in the DC area, but I'm just living with it, you know, and trying to love it. Other than that, I'm great. I, I have learned to love the heat. I used to not like it so much, but it doesn't bother me anymore, I have to say. Wow. Good for you. That, that gets me. How was your Labor Day weekend, by the way? It was wonderful. So before it got really hot again, uh, we were out. We had a half day on Friday. That was awesome. And then uh, we went right outside. My wife and I did yard work for half a day and all day Saturday. And boy, was I tired. But it was good. We got it all done before the heat came back. So we had a great time. Let me ask you something just between us. When Heritage has a half a day, do you do you work a half a day? Yeah, actually, we do. do? My, the, the boss is very... But I, I got, do, too. Just to be clear, I also... Right. I, sometimes I work three quarters a day. I know. You never know. It's minute over noon. I'm done. The computer right. shuts off. No, what what I get, I, I'm in here in the studio with you, so I don't get to take a lot of work from home days, but uh-huh. my boss, being as great as she is, said, let's all make sure we work from home, on, on but we all did our, we were accountable. We had all our right. morning meeting, and but I clocked out right at noon, and I was done, so okay. it was good. <laughs> now, does it bother you that you had such a good time celebrating a communist holiday? Well, only I only felt good because I, my wife had me laboring, so I was right. laboring on Labor Day. Well, not so much on Labor Day, but Labor Day weekend. Boy, did I labor. Well, I'm about to get, tell you about a labor story, but first, I need to give everyone an update on my microwave. I was so excited. Oh, last, yeah. How'd that go? Uh, not well. I didn't fix it. <laughs> not um, well. <laughs> we had a repairman come, and he fixed. I changed. I did what I thought. Ended up just being a loose wire, but I was still happy that I was able to take it apart and not be so intimidated by so, the inside of a microwave. So, Jack, what you're saying is you didn't have a screw loose? <laughs> that's Yes, that's okay. Exactly that's good to know. No, actually, I'm saying I did have a screw <laughs> loose. Literally. Well, yeah, it was, a, it was a loose <laughs> screw, basically. Now, let me tell you about my weekend real quick. Go. I started um, after we got off on Friday, and I finished at dusk yesterday. I built an outdoor shower. Wow. Yeah, with... Um, I mean, it's fancy. It's it's made out of wood and tin. I even I did a, a different application than I've done before. We haven't talked about a lot about this, but I fancy myself a home improvement kind of guy. When nice. when, I, when I'm not here working or I'm not out catching a fish or killing a deer, I like to build stuff. Nice. And so uh, so I built an outdoor shower, and I on the for the floor I put in. Um, Rock, you know, rock with with mortar, mortared in rocks. Right. Okay. And I'd never done that before, and I'm I'm still not finished that part of it. Everything else is done. My God, is that a work? Talk about labor. Holy cow! And as hot as it was, I doing, work... you're doing like cement work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's work. Yeah. that that is backbreaking work. My yeah. hands are all banged up, but you know, Ugh. but it was a. I, I love doing that. I I, I, 
I love doing that stuff. Well, I've got a question about the outdoor shower. Yeah. If you don't mind. So usually, you know, at the beach, we do outdoor shower. Is this like a regular thing? Do you shower inside or is it always outside? Are you like a mountain man and you go outside to shower and when it's like 30 degrees? <laughs> First of all, everything I do is like a mountain man. Okay. It's good to I want to be clear about that. <laughs> no, um, you know, we, we have the place down by the the lake and I'm, I just like doing stuff. Okay. So and and the the shed that I work from, right, right, um, which is quite nice by the way. Thank you. It doesn't have a shower. So I oh. made an outdoor shower so that someone could stay down there if they wanted right. to. Right. So when the guests come and visit, they don't say you guys get to use the outdoor shower. Right. Here right. you go. <laughs> Enjoy. Yeah. So and it's just something to build. Anyway. Yeah, that's cool. Well, good for you. So I want, we need to do do our housekeeping. Yes. Um first our email address is thepowerhouratheritage.org. Shoot me an email. I'm dying to hear what you, how you think we're doing, what we should cover, um, all that sort of thing. So, shoot us that, e, uh, shoot me the email address at thepowerhour@heritage.org. John, can you tell folks where to find us? Yes, look up the Power Hour Heritage, and you can just Google that. Go to any of your podcast formats. So, we're heard at Heritage. The Power Hour is the feed, and please subscribe and share that feed with your friends and your enemies too. Yes, subscribe. <laughs> Share yeah. with your friends and enemies. Yes, right. All right. Now we have a great uh, we have we have a great episode lined up for next week, and as I mentioned, I wanted to get folks to send questions about upcoming episodes. So right, um, that next the episode next week is going to be talking about gas and oil and electricity, sort of broad gener- broad energy policy. But we have someone with experience working in industry, Congress, and the executive branch. So if you have any questions about especially oil and gas, let me know, and we'll. Uh, We'll get those questions asked for you. So now, John, now I know that I'm always excited about our guests, and today is no different. I think folks know by now the sorts of issues that get me fired up. I like nuclear energy. I like coal. You love coal. I do love coal. <laughs> you sure do. I love coal. Um, but you know what I love the most? What? I love talking about how corrupt, lying, ego-driven politicians and special interests use energy policy to advance their agenda. Wow, that's deep. (laughs) I can't stand them so bad, (laughs) and I love talking about them. Uh, So I've basically concluded that they're able to get away with this garbage because they are never really challenged. They either put themselves in environments where they aren't challenged, or if they are challenged, there's insufficient time to really develop the debate. We all see the talking heads on TV and the politicians that talk about energy policy and sound bites. It allows them to basically say whatever they want. Solar is good. Oil is bad. Global warming, climate change. It's all just a bunch of words as far as I'm concerned. No one has to defend what they say. As the kids say, where are the receipts? Well, today, our guest has the receipts. In fact, he has an entire book of them. He actually has multiple books of them. But today, we're going to talk about his fresh, hot-off-the-presses new book, it's an absolute pleasure to introduce to our Power Hour audience, Steve Gorham, Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, and author of four books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development with over 100,000 copies in print. So, like, he's actually selling books. He's not, you know, people that I usually talk with who, who are authors who sold one book to their, right, their mother. Right. He's selling them. Steve's new book... The one we're going to talk about here today is called Green Breakdown, The Coming Renewable Energy Failure. It came out on August 1st. Steve, welcome to the Power Hour. 
Hey, Jack and John. Great to join you uh, today. Well, we're really, we're really glad you were able to take some time out of your busy day, which I know you have a million things going on, to join us. Now, before we get into the, the sort of policy meat of the podcast, I want to just learn a little bit more about you. How's your summer gone? Are you, are you having a good time? And where are you at? Well, I'm in Chicago. I've had a great summer. And uh, launching the book has been fun. And uh, been a little warm in, in the summer in, in Chicago, but not anywhere near our uh, records. Uh, often when I speak to people around uh, Chicago here, I tell them our record is 117 Fahrenheit. That was set back in 1954. Are you guys in Maryland? D.C., right in the swamp. Right, yeah. right in D.C. Well, surrounding Maryland's kind of interesting. Maryland's record is 109 Fahrenheit, and it was set, uh, it's, it's a number of ties. It was set in 1898 1918 and 1936 were those record highs. <laughs> Interesting. So, so what you're saying is it being hot in the summertime is kind of normal. And That's right. just because it seems really hot doesn't mean it's abnormal. That's right. We've had warmer temperatures in the past than we do today, despite what the headlines are saying. Matter of fact, if you look at, at the, there's a site on uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that has the state records. And so if you look at the state high temperature records, you find that um, 23 of the 50 state high records were set during the 1930s, and uh, 36 of the 50, 70%, were set uh, 1970 or before. So it makes you scratch your head a little bit about everybody talking about how this is the hottest summer in history and all that sort of thing. So wh where do they come up with that? Like, wh if, if one of them were sitting here... How do they defend themselves? You know, I think they find some scientist somewhere in the world that, that has uh, made this conclusion. I think in July, somebody said it was the hottest July in 180,000 years. And then it is broadcast everywhere in the, in the media like it's, like it's a true story, never challenged. But, you know, there's, there are literally, there's an ocean of evidence that says that today's climate is not historically warm. We had warmer temperatures a thousand years ago during the medieval warm period, two thousand years ago during the when the Romans conquered the Mediterranean, four and eight thousand years ago, uh, literally for uh, multiple centuries at a time, it was warmer than today. So that those are those are the actual data, and uh, Earth's climate has been warming a little bit over the last uh, 150 or 200 years, but it's really nothing that's abnormal. Yeah, that so would would you say that the warming that has occurred is within normal variances of what you would expect? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's kind of, but but the public thinks something different. <laughs> I had a couple of uh, uh, young lady students call me up from UCLA for a phone interview a while back, and so I started asking them questions, and I said, "How much do you think temperatures have warmed?" in the last century or so. One said five degrees Fahrenheit, another 10 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> but the actual data is uh, since we've had thermometers since 1880, we've had only one degree of Celsius temperature rise in 140 years, about two degrees Fahrenheit, which is what we all experience on a typical morning between nine and 10 a.m. So um, we have had a, we've had a gentle warming, but it's very, very small compared to historical norms. You know, one of the reasons I think it might be the case that people tend to be willing to accept the 
global warming narrative is that they are presented with so-called solutions that um, they're all good. You know, it's like not only can we fix global warming, but we'll create jobs, we'll, 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 we'll develop these new technologies, and it's all built around this idea that wind and solar are the cheapest source, sources of electricity out there. If, if wind and yep. solar are, are the cheapest, then let's do that, and everyone is better off. Where is wind and solar cheaper? Well, it really isn't, and and you know we have to massively subsidize it, even though it's cheaper, so that people will accept it, which doesn't make any sense. Right. But right, the uh, on, a, on a marginal basis, in uh, cents per kilowatt hour, wind and solar can be cheaper. But that's not really the full cost of, of electrical power. Electrical power systems have to provide, they have to meet demand every second and every minute and every hour of every day. And wind and solar can't do that. They're intermittent sources. And so when you put them into the system, you create all sorts of issues for keeping the power on. Um, there's a graph I've been graphing for about six or seven years now, which uh, which is about Europe, and it shows the uh, electricity along one axis, the, the cost of electricity, and the amount of wind and solar per capita in a nation along another axis. And if wind and solar were cheapest, you would expect the nations that put in the most wind and solar to have the lowest electricity prices. Uh, obvious, right? But it's exactly the opposite. Uh, they, we have a curve sloping up. The, the nations that put the in the most wind and solar have the highest electricity prices, particularly Denmark and Germany, where electricity price is three times the price we pay in the United States. We and, also have... Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask, do you, what, have the economic, what has the economic impact of that been, given everything, literally everything we do requires energy? Well, it, it, it's... Uh, it is starting to have an impact, and that's part of what uh, Green Breakdown is about. In the U.S., we have uh, California, for example, Green California, where electricity prices are now uh, more than double any other state in the West. Uh, in the last three years, California passed up New England, which is renowned for high electricity prices, and has become the second most expensive in the nation, behind Hawaii, 26 cents per kilowatt hour. And a big portion of that is because they're building a lot of wind and solar and they are retiring, they have retired, uh, the lower cost coal and natural gas plants and, and even uh, some of their nuclear plants. So where we see wind and solar going in, we see rising electricity prices. Now, one of the, I want to go back to something you had mentioned earlier about the subsidies. Um, it's so odd to me that the renewable folks claim that wind and solar and renewables are so cheaper, yet, um, as we've seen time and again, every time there's an opportunity to subsidize them, they demand the subsidies. And, and with the Inflation Reduction Act, that has gone absolutely on steroids. But yes. on the other hand, we've seen <laughs> time and again, that when these subsidies go away, like the wind production tax credit and things like that, investment just drops, you know, it bottoms out. And it's so funny how they still are able to go out and make these arguments. Like what we were saying earlier, no one really challenges them in a mass media sort of way. And it allows them to perpetuate 
all of these sort of narratives that are based on nothing true. Yeah, we have a perfect example right now with, with the uh, wind systems that are proposed for off the east coast of the United States, um, off of uh, uh, New Jersey and, and Virginia, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Uh, roughly a, do a dozen companies had signed contracts to put in uh, offshore wind. And now uh, we've had a number of companies say uh, they're, they're going to pay a penalty and withdraw. We have other companies that are asking for much higher subsidies. Uh, they're having uh, trouble uh, having ends meet because of the cost of materials and uh, because of the cost in the supply chain right now. But it's, it's another example. Offshore wind is very expensive uh, relative to our traditional electricity sources. Yeah, the other thing that frustrates me with the whole, this whole approach to energy policy is that there doesn't seem any rec to be any recognition of the historical fact that when you subsidize something, you do nothing to drive down the cost or to advance the technology. What you do is perpetuate mediocrity. You cause prices to increase by the amount of the subsidy. And we've seen that time and again across the economy over time. And we see it happening in real time with, en with energy policy that we keep being told that if we just subsidize this stuff a little bit longer, prices will ultimately go down. And that's not how subsidies work. And the technology is not really getting much better. And it's certainly not getting competitive. And if these folks really wanted renewables to be successful, they would advocate for getting rid of the subsidies so that the best the, the the capital would flow towards the best most promising ideas and out of that process maybe we would get some alternatives yeah and the subsidies have gone through the roof as you say yeah uh, during the obama administration uh the federal government was providing somewhere between 12 and 15 billion dollars a year to the wind solar and renewables energy uh, that went down to about 8 billion a year under president trump but the Inflation Reduction Act is just like a huge slush fund, something like 40 or $50 billion a year now. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's roughly double or triple what was in the Obama administration. It's going into all sorts of things like carbon dioxide capture and storage and hydrogen and wind and solar and all sorts of things. It's amazing. You know, you, you send your tax dollars to Washington and it just gets shoveled to all these organizations um, you know, the crazy thing is, though, it's, it's unlikely, you know, if you really look at the theory of man-made warming, it's unlikely that all this money, all this wind, all this solar is going to have a measurable effect on global temperatures. Uh, that's, that's another uh, a bit of a side tangent here, but, but it is remarkable how much we are spending on, on these, uh, these technologies. Yeah. Um, now, I want to get to your book, but just one final point I want to make, because, you know, regarding this whole energy policy debate. You know, one of the things that I get a little bit frustrated with um, with folks on the conservative side is people who argue, well, we should at least be putting the money towards things that we want, like nuclear or coal or, or natural gas. And and my, my fear is that you run into the same problem. Once you start subsidizing things, you basically stop innovation and for something like nuclear which ne has never fully existed in the marketplace you'll never get the innovation that free markets actually will yield and so my 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 view always has been get rid of all the subsidies and uh, see what happens well i think so maybe some research grants or things but not subsidies for production and and uh industrial use i i, I agree i don't think that's a very good thing to do 
You know, the other thing that's that's occurring that I'm sure we'll get to is uh, we have uh, these uh, forced transitions. Another thing I talk about a little bit in, in Green Breakdown, this idea that you can't uh, build a house anymore with a gas stove. Right. Uh, the, so we have the, uh, the federal government, uh, Department of Energy, putting in standards for gas stoves, which are, are so strict they're going to eliminate many of them from the market. Uh, we have the EPA that has uh, new carbon pollution standards that were announced in May uh, that, that are up for discussion. But the idea there is to get rid of, make it impossible to have a coal plant or to make sure, force you to do carbon capture and storage. And then the third biggie is uh, uh, mileage and uh, CO2 standards for, for uh, cars and vehicles. Uh, the EPA is basically going to make it impossible within about a decade for any car manufacturer to produce a line of internal combustion engine uh, gasoline cars. It's just not going to be possible to meet, meet the standards if we continue down this same path. So not only do we have these huge subsidies, but we have these ruinous restrictions which take away choice for consumers and for businesses. Which gives rise to the book you wrote. The uh, you, you talk about a green breakdown. Why don't you give us a, an overview of the book and tell us what you mean by this uh, green breakdown. Right. So we have about, about one-seventh of the world today that is driving for a green energy transition. Uh, these are the wealthy nations. Uh, the United States, Europe, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and, and some others. You said one-seventh? About one-seventh of the world population, okay. yep. if you will. And so they're driving for this transition, and they've said, uh, we have to get rid of hydrocarbons, coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, we have to uh, install wind, solar, and biofuels, and we have to get to net zero by 2050. And so that is, that is the goal of the renewable energy future, um, that we have uh, net zero means that we won't have any significant emissions of carbon dioxide from our processes, and that pretty much means get rid of uh, uh, most uh, combustion, or whatever is emitted we'll try and capture with carbon dioxide capture and storage. So that is where the, the United States, Europe, the wealthy nations are headed, and they're also demanding that the developing nations do the same. But but we have about six-sevenths of the world that is kind of marching down the path of trying to develop in, in the way everybody else has done, using coal plants and other sorts of things. But Green Breakdown, so Green Breakdown is a complete discussion of the transition from uh, power plants, utilities, uh, home appliances, uh, electric vehicles, uh, heavy transportation, airlines, shipping, uh, heavy industry, carbon capture and storage, um, and um, hydrogen economy, and it also, also talks about uh, the recent uh, energy crisis in Europe. And the book predicts that we are not going to get anywhere net, net, near net zero, either in major nations or globally. We're going to have a breakdown because what is going to happen, this transition is going to suffer higher energy, higher energy prices, higher electricity. We're going to have electricity blackouts. The more intermittent uh, wind and solar we put in, the higher the chances of, of electricity disruptions. We're going to have less freedom. That means uh, you can't get a gas stove or a gasoline car. And, we're, and worst of all, we're going to have these transnational energy shocks. Uh, we've seen that in Europe over the last two years. Uh, prices in Europe uh, for natural gas are still double what they were two years ago. And for electricity, they're three or four times what they were 
a few years ago, and Europe's economy has taken a, a step function down uh, because of these energy prices. So uh, the book predicts that people are going to get rid of uh, uh, this uh, trend toward green energy. They're going to demand a return to low-cost, reliable energy. Uh, it's going to take a couple decades to, uh, to unfold, but it's sure going to be interesting. And of course, what will happen is when that demand occurs, you will have an entire significant part of your economy that has followed the government's, who has complied with the government's demand. And when this, when we transition back, they will then demand bailouts and all sorts <laughs> of, of support. It's, yeah. going be, it's going to be a mess. Now, this notion of electricity prices, and we need to remind folks or we probably should remind folks that just how important electricity is to everything. We take it for granted here in the United States, but all around the world, people don't have access to it to the way we do. And it has a real impact on health and standards of living and just the ability for humans to be human. Um, mm -hmm. And low electricity prices really are what can help drive societies forward. And by the same token, higher electricity prices will ultimately drive us backwards. So I'm wondering, as you've looked at this, um, do you see a is, – is that always is there always the correlation or causation there where once you start enacting these green policies, you start to see the electricity prices increasing? Well, we do. We see some of that already. I mentioned California. Australia is another nation. Uh, a decade ago, Australia had amongst the lowest electricity prices in the world, but they've roughly doubled. They're, they're, they're approaching some of the highest prices now. Uh, Australia has a kind of an interesting situation relative to other nations. Uh, they have no nuclear power, and only 6% of their electricity is provided by uh, hydroelectric dams. Almost all is, um, over half is coal, and then there's a bunch of natural gas as well. Well, they basically said, well, we're going to build all this wind. I think they're up to about 20% of their electricity is wind now. And we're going to shut down all the coal and shut down the natural gas. The problem with that is then you have no reliable energy sources. You don't have nuclear, you don't have hydroelectric, and so you're going to have blackouts. Utility managers know that uh, as you say, well, we're going to do more and more wind and solar, you, you can't run a system on wind and solar. And so you have to keep 90% of your traditional energy power sources around as you introduce more and more wind and solar for the times when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow. And so what you end up doing is you run the traditional coal and natural gas systems at lower utilization. And so they become unprofitable. You have to run them at lower utilization. You still got to keep them around though. And so what you have to do is you end up adding a whole additional set of uh, electricity infrastructure. Uh, you keep 90% of the old infrastructure, coal, natural, natural gas, and nuclear, and you got to add a whole bunch of wind and solar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so as you approach 100% electricity, you end up doubling your infrastructure, and the prices go way, way up. Or you can decide not to do that, and then you end up with blackouts, as some of our states have learned. So have you seen – where have you seen the blackouts occur? Uh, I, I, you, we hear about them in the news sometime, but I'm curious – are they driven by these green policies? Sort of, let's take it a level deeper. What's going on out there? Right. So, so the, the recent ones that made a lot of press were in February of 2021, we had massive blackouts in Texas and also uh, in Oklahoma. 
But in Texas, uh, the electrical power is off for 72 hours, three days, to more than four and a half million people. And uh, it's a terrible situation. Uh, the estimates are that 700 people died from this blackout. Uh, that's more than most large hurricanes. Uh, or in addition, if, if you were able to run your, your electrical power, uh, you got a $10,000 bill uh, because uh, f the supply was so tight for electricity. A $10,000 electricity bill is, is no fun. Well, the state of Texas bailed those people out. But we also had uh, issues in California as well. We had rolling blackouts in the fall of uh, 2021, and uh, uh, power was shut off to millions of people. The problem is that we are headed down this road. If you look at uh, uh, U.S. Uh, national statistics, the, uh, and this is from the Energy Information Administration, the average electric power outage for a customer, either a business or a uh, consumer, back about 2013, 2014, was about three hours of outage a year. That was the average. By 2021, that had risen to almost eight hours of, of outage per year. So that has uh, more than doubled, almost tripled, and we're heading down the road where we're going to get much more of this. And many of the utilities have just kind of succumbed to what the states have told them. you got to be green. you got to build wind and solar. Also a lot of push to retire uh, coal and natural gas plants, particularly coal. And so, uh, unfortunately, many of our uh, societies are going to learn the hard way, many of our cities, that this is not good policy, and it's going to injure our citizens, both in terms of prices and blackouts. Yeah, one, it's always frustrating to me. You mentioned the utilities. I mean, they don't fight back, probably largely, at least in regulated markets, because they get made whole. They just get to charge, you know, they're not in a, a market competing. They have these monopolies. They do what the government says. The government allows them to set the price. And so what do they care? Well, some of them do, but there's a tremendous amount of pressure, as you know. We have... Yeah. Today, we have 180 leaders, heads of state of the world, they say they believe in the theory of man-made warming. And we have uh, uh, this net zero drive in, in U.S. and Europe, and, and many of the major states have picked this up. And so it's very tough for the utilities to keep fighting the battle. And um, unfortunately, the citizens are going to suffer. I mean, New England is a perfect example. Uh, New England... Uh, actually is, has a shortage of natural gas every winter. The state of New York blocked the building of pipelines for about right. the last two decades. And so the, uh, New England was actually importing natural gas from Russia <laughs> a couple years ago for a while before the, uh, uh, the war in Ukraine occurred. But uh, they have very high prices. Uh, the cost of electricity is more than $1,000 a month for a reasonable size home and that's even in a winter when the, when the weather wasn't bad. They are heading down the road for blackouts. It's going to occur. And unless they, uh, unless they pull back and uh, uh, make sure that they, they restore some dispatchable, reliable energy sources, that's where they're going to be. But uh, unfortunately, uh, this is going to be what we're, what we're seeing over the next, next uh, few decades. And you're starting to see the politicians sort of... Um prepare people for that by saying things like, I think it was uh, our old buddy to the north. Oh, God, the the leader of Canada, Trudeau. God, how did I forget Trudeau? <laughs> how can you um, forget him? <laughs> saying the other day, you know, that 
don't quote me on this. I think it was he who said the era of affordable energy prices is gone. And it's just like, yeah. it's pathetic because never have we had more energy resources at our disposal. Right. Well, Canada has one great advantage. They get about 50% of the electricity from hydroelectric. I think about 55. But you're right. This uh, And the climate has been the excuse for everything now. Yeah. Um, we get all these notices from uh, power companies in Texas and California and everywhere else that are saying, uh, don't use any electricity. Well, we, it's going to be very hot. So, you know, we don't have enough to provide. you got to turn everything down. Uh, I think back in June, they said, uh, right after they said in California they were going to ban all uh, gasoline cars by 2035, right. they yeah. issued a message saying, uh, don't charge your car because <laughs> <Right. laughs> we so don't have hilarious. enough power. So it has really become an excuse in so many places. I mean, the number one goal of a utility, electric utility, ought to be keep the power on. And if you can't do that, then your system is is really not up to stuff. But, uh, yeah, that, you're right. Politicians and and uh, utilities are now have an excuse to uh, to give everybody poor electric service. You mentioned uh, blackouts a lot. I I, I want to just take a moment. Can you describe what those are? That's not, or what we're talking about is not a tree falling on a line, but rather it's the the utilities or the the people who manage electricity flows making a decision to not send out electricity because they're not producing enough. Is that correct? It is correct, and that's what they do to prevent a total system collapse. In the case of Texas in, in February of 2021, another interesting case, they projected worst-case temperatures of about 11 degrees Fahrenheit. I think the year was uh, uh, 2010 in Dallas-Fort Worth or something they were using as a benchmark. I actually talked to the guy who was on the board of ERCOT, uh, and so they were projecting a... Uh, maximum demand of 50 gigawatts. But when it got very cold, it got down to about two or three degrees Fahrenheit. And by the way, it took me about 10 minutes looking at uh, the national weather records to see that had happened more than 10 times in the last 100 years. They got down to three degrees. But they had their, they pegged their worst case at, at something like 11 degrees. Maybe they thought the planet had warmed and was never going to get cold again. <laughs> but the demand, they're, they're, they, they had a worst case 50 gigawatts, and the demand was over 70 gigawatts. They were off by, you know, about 25, 30 percent. And so in that case, what the system operator does is they enforce outages. They back, basically shut the power off. Uh, to portions of the population so that the system doesn't go down. Because if the total system goes down, if, if the demand is too high, much higher than you can supply, the total system can go down, and then it might take a week or two to, to restart. So the, the system operators actually uh, shut off areas of power uh, so that uh, the system could survive and be restarted. So that is what typically happens. They call these rolling blackouts typically. They'll black out one area and then restart it and black out another, except in the case of Texas when, when the, the difference in demand supply was so big they had to shut off wide areas for, for long periods of time. You said something earlier that scared me. Now, if there's one thing I love more than coal, it's freedom. And you said that this whole this this policy that we're talking these policies we're talking about will not just lead to higher prices not just lead to less reliability, but will also lead to a loss of freedom. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, uh, gas stoves are, a, are a, an example. 
we actually ha have a uh, <clears throat> gas stove war going on in the United States, if you will. <laughs> we have uh, six states. Uh, I'm probably going to make that seven, but California, Oregon, Washington, New York, Massachusetts, and Maryland, where cities and counties now have instituted uh, bans on natural gas and new construction. So they said, okay, um, you know, you, if you're going to build something new, you can't put gas into it. It must be electric. And the, the other interesting thing going on, though, is we have 19 states which have passed laws prohibiting city and county gas bans. And so we have this, this thing going on right now. But, uh, by the way, interesting, in California, uh, there was just a suit to cite earlier this year uh, Berkeley, California, was the first city in the in the nation to impose a, a ban on natural gas and new construction. That was back in 2018, and so they were sued by the restaurant owners in California <laughs> because the restaurant owners wanted to be able to cook with gas. And the the Ninth Circuit Court on the West Coast, a very liberal court, just decided three to zero to overrule the Berkeley law. I think that was back in April or May. And um, because they said it, it uh, went afoul of a, uh, a federal a law of 1975 on energy use, which said you couldn't dictate which energy went to, uh, into people's homes and that sort of thing. So that's an interesting thing. That's going to be used in this current war over gas stoves on the side of the folks that, that want to maintain freedom and, and choice for people to, to choose uh, the stove that they would like to use. Yeah, I believe that's the uh, 1975 Energy Policy and Conservation Act, okay. which also, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's it. It also um, talks about the importance of maintaining um, competitive markets, not taking complete technologies off the market. <laughs> like so much of what the federal government has done in the last you know decade, probably more, it uses these statutes that were created at a different time in a different place and completely distorts and perverts those those original uh, why they were originally put in place to advance what their current agenda is and whether it's co2 or the the efficiency stuff I mean it's they're they're using all of these tools that are at their disposal disposal in ways that they were never intended yeah that is that is true. And the, federal, and the uh, Supreme Court has pushed back on that a little bit recently. Yeah, I wish it, though, had done so, you know, 10 years ago. It's mm -hmm. like, I don't know, I don't want to say it's too little too late, but God, we're far down this road. You know, yeah, the really big, starting the biggest, with the endangerment finding. The biggest thing is electric vehicles. Yeah. We do have bans in a number of states now that, that say, uh, or, or they have bans proposed for the year 2035 or so. But the thing people don't know is that uh, environmental Protection Agency regulations are aimed at forcing a transition to all EVs. Uh, there are first, there are uh, regulations on the amount of uh, grams of carbon dioxide per kilometer driven that a vehicle can emit. And those are already far below what a typical car, gasoline car can do. Automakers have been using a mix of hybrids and uh, small cars and exempt cars to be able to continue to produce gasoline vehicles. Uh, but, but that's going to be tougher and tougher. And then the second thing is a new vehicle standard, 49 miles per gallon by 2026. So the EPA is, 
is basically making it impossible for auto manufacturers to, to uh, provide gasoline uh, cars. And they're starting to push back now. Some of the automakers are saying, uh, you shouldn't be doing this. But, you know, I don't, I, I don't really want a gas car. We, my wife and I have a, uh, a home in Virginia Beach. We spend four months there. And then in Chicago, we drive between the two, 930 miles. If I had an electric, first 300 miles would be good. But after that, to go another 100 miles, would I'd have to charge for a half hour, an hour. It would, it would turn a, a one-day trip or a one-and-a-half-day one and trip into a three-day trip. You have to get a place on Lake Erie. Yeah, Lake Erie, right. That's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I met, uh, speaking at a conference, I met a guy whose wife had a Tesla, and they lived in Cleveland. And uh, a year ago, they got down to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and her Tesla would not charge, literally would not charge out outside at 10 degrees. And she called the manufacturer, and they said, well, it's kind of the way it is. Um, so the other thing is, you know, if you want an EV and you want it to run it in the winter, you better have a heated garage and you better heat your garage all winter. And um, I think it's interesting up in Canada that they, they have, they're considering a rule that would uh, call for zero emission vehicles by 2035. <laughs> so they're uh, going to depend it, on the same thing like you mentioned earlier, that it's going to be it will have warmed enough by then to support that. <laughs> Well, basically, between December and February, unless they got a heated garage in Canada, they won't be able to run their vehicle. They won't be able to charge it. So, uh, you know, there's a bunch of crazy things. But again, we ought to go back to, hey, I'm not against electric vehicles. Uh, give people a choice. You want to buy an electric? That's fine. You want to buy gasoline? That's fine. Don't tell people you got to get rid of the gasoline to keep the planet from warming. That's that's the closest thing to modern superstition as I can imagine. Yeah. Now, there must be something good about electric vehicles, though. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, you can charge them at home, yeah. which is, is the best thing. And that can be less expensive. If you are, you're running short distances, you can charge every night. EVs are penetrating world markets. Uh, last year, we had about uh, 14 uh, million EVs sold. I'm sorry, 14% share um, of EVs in the world market. USA was about 6%. Uh, we've got, after the year of 2022, we got about 27 million EVs on, on the road out of 1.5 billion light vehicles, about 2%. So they are penetrating the world. By the way, uh, the share is higher in, in uh, Europe and China. But again, a lot of this is an early adopter kind of thing. Uh, a lot of people are using them for second cars. Uh, California, the average uh, University of Chicago did a survey of, of California EV owners, and they were driving them an average of 55 hundred miles a year. So that's that's pretty small for a vehicle. And I think we're going to get, it's going to be a little tougher to get to the general population. The early adopters are here, but but uh, uh, going to be tougher. But again, hey, let's, let's let folks uh, choose instead of forcing them to do uh, A or B. Hey, yeah. Jack. Yeah. I'm sorry, Jack and Steve. I guess if you have an EV and you're in a cold climate, you can't use gas, though, to heat your garage to charge your EV. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is exactly what the left wants. They want to keep us dependent and stationary. Yep. And move us into big city blocks, block buildings. Um, not to, I'm sure they have better intentions than that. Um, <laughs> but even though, even those EV sales that you mentioned, Steve, I would argue that a lot of that's driven by the subsidies and not by yes. the, the car themselves. And I'm not anti-EV at all. 
I, you know, I don't have a ton of experience with them, but I have some, and I think that they're they're cool cars, and certainly they 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 seem to to go fast and are fun to drive and all that. But like you said, just let the market decide. And what what I wish the EV folks would realize is that if they allowed them to compete in the marketplace, that's how you get the best possible EV for the best possible price. But yep, that would be not, good. Yeah, charging is. By the way, charging is still a big, big problem for EVs. Um, there aren't chargers around. Often they're not working. Um, they they want to put them in places where they're not attended by an attendant. But then you have a situation of you know who wants to char- which woman wants to charge at seven at night with nobody around. We have thieves going off and cutting off cables. There are a lot of issues that need to be resolved. Uh, if you have a, uh, if you don't have a home, you don't have a garage, then you're trying to charge it across the sidewalk in the street. Uh, not a real good sort of thing. So, uh, again, a mix. The future is. I, I, I'm predicting about 20% share in the U.S. by 2050 of vehicles are EVs. Uh, we're still going to have the majority be uh, uh, gasoline or diesel, and uh, you, we're just going to have a mix in the future. Yeah, and 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 Elon Musk is perfectly capable of figuring out all of those things without Washington Washington helping him. You know, I think I think about, you know, for example, cell phones. Cell phones didn't work for everyone in the mid 1980s. You know, Gordon Gecko got to enjoy his big block cell phone himself. But over time, the infrastructure is built and uh, the the quality goes up, it becomes democratized, prices come down, and that's how these things work. You know, flat screen TVs is another good example. All of these things, they, they, they start off clunky and expensive, and they end up as commoditized consumer goods. And that's the same thing that would happen with electric vehicles and other renewable energy sources if they would just allow that to happen. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, you know, again, what's driving all this is the fear of global warming and, and – uh, so until until we get over that hurdle, uh, it, it, there's going to be this push uh, on all these uh, renewables. Now you talk about um, transnational energy shocks. What do you mean by that? Well, what happened in Europe was remarkable. Um, over the last two decades, Europe has become very, very dependent on two sources of electricity. One is inter- intermittent wind and solar, and the other is natural gas. And back in 2000, they were uh, uh, producing most, uh, more than, uh, than half of their natural gas. But by uh, two years ago, they were importing most of it and much of that from Russia. Then in 2021, in the summer, the wind didn't blow much. Really a strange situation. Uh, electricity output from, from wind was down 20 to 30 percent from the, the trends in earlier years. And so what did Europe do? They burned natural gas all summer. And by the fall, their, their supplies of gas were very tight and the price had gone way up. Now, this was the end of 2021. This was two months before the Ukraine invasion. Gas prices went up by a factor of five by December of that last year. And, and electricity prices went up by a factor of six. And then we had the invasion of Ukraine and they both skyrocketed. And it really killed industry in Europe in many ways. Uh, The population as well, people were uh, uh, urged uh, not to bathe in the United Kingdom or to uh, shower with a friend. (laughs) 
In Hungary, they were putting uh, wood stoves back in schools because they were afraid they weren't going to have natural gas. There were limits set for temperature, um, how low you could set your temperature in your house in the summer and how high in the winter. So all these things came into place. Now, the prices have come down some, but natural gas price is still about five times the U.S. price and has doubled uh, in Europe from a couple years ago. And their electricity prices are up still by a factor of three or four. And so what is Europe doing? They, they haven't really said that they're, they're changing direction, but their, their actions show they're retreating from green energy. Uh, coal for power plant uh, is up 20% uh, since last year. Uh, Germany restarted 27 coal-fired power plants that were closed. Uh, there were plans to increase uh, natural gas production in Netherlands, in Norway, in Italy, and other areas. And the continent also ordered 25 liquefied natural gas import terminals so they could import gas from most of the U.S. and Africa. By the way, the reason the light stayed on last year was in part because of, in large part, because of gas, uh, liquefied gas shipments from the United States. So these are, these are serious issues. And uh, a big, big part of this was the shift to uh, wind and solar, green energy sources. And as I say, Australia, other places are going to see similar problems if, if they push this issue. And one of the sad parts about Europe is that they have so many energy resources there that they could be taking advantage of. You know, yes, I think they do. What, what Europe is demonstrating, and, and I wish our policymakers would take notice, but they don't, is the difference between access and dependence. That not that, not that one wants to be paying Vladimir Putin anything, but let's say prior to Ukraine, you're getting uh, natural gas from, from Russia. If at the same time you're developing your domestic resources, then sure, if Putin invades Ukraine and, um, and you need to cut off that gas— then that those price signals will send you know will 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 incentivize domestic sources to provide more, but and and that's an access situation. Whereas what Europe has done and what the United States had done in the past and is moving toward in the future, are creating these dependency relationships where you're not developing your own resources, you're getting resources from someone else. Then if that resource is no longer available, you're out of luck. That's what in fact that's what we're ha see happening right now with this push towards batteries and some of the renewable stuff where we're so dependent on China for yep. the rare earth minerals and the manufacturing capacity and all of that stuff. Yeah, there's a, according to the International Energy Agency, um, the average electric vehicle has six times the special metals of a traditional gasoline car. And those metals are copper and cobalt and lithium, uh, nickel, and, um, as you say, uh, China is, a big, is the biggest processor in the world of metals. Something like uh, between 30 to 60 or 70 percent share of all of those metals are processed in China. And then they are mined mostly in the developing world. Uh, a striking example is the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the largest producer of cobalt in the world. And if you, it, there have been many, many news stories about those mines where they are using forced labor and child labor. And so they can produce cobalt, then they ship it to China where it is processed, and then it comes to the United States so that you're, you can have a Tesla. <laughs> so 
So we, we don't see any of the environmental impacts and the societal impacts from that when we buy our Tesla, but they are out there. Um, Europe, as you say, uh, became dependent on natural gas. There was a study done by the European community in 2017 that, and I, that identified more than 40 shale fields, uh, shale rock fields in Europe that contained oil and gas. But the continent, because they want to be green, has decided to frack none of those fields. And so they're paying for it now in terms of energy prices. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. And and seeing firsthand what happens when your uh, when your energy source becomes denied, the 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 deindustrialization the, the de that began happening, you would think people would stand up and say, "All right, enough is enough." But it seems like they're doubling down now. One of the one of the justifications that our policymakers would have us think about or believe, say, don't worry about any of this. We're transitioning. And things like heavy industry, we'll be able to use capture and storage to, to decarbonize. We'll be able to get to net zero with, with heavy industry. Sort of what are your thoughts on that? Is, is it even possible to do? Yeah, carbon capture and storage is, is really uh, maybe one of the more foolish things we've done for many, many years. Just briefly, carbon dioxide should not be called a pollutant. It's, it's great for plants. Uh, all 45 of the, of the uh, uh, food plants that produce 95% of our, our food in, in diets, they all grow bigger with higher levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. But nevertheless, the International Energy Agency and many nations are marching off with this plan to capture carbon dioxide in storage. Problem is it's very, very expensive uh, in Wyoming uh, which is the biggest coal state in the nation. They get 85% of electricity from coal, and they do 41% of U.S. coal mining. They said, you know, we've got good spots to put carbon dioxide underground, so let's get our coal plants to capture it. And they passed a House Bill 200 a few years ago on this. But the big utilities looked at it, and they said it's just way too expensive. Black Hills Energy estimated to convert two plants to carbon capture and storage would cost a billion dollars. And that was three times the, price, the original price of the plants. So these things are very, very expensive. And, you know, you need to put somewhere underground. You need to put, put it through pipelines. Uh, again, just, just not something that makes any sense. Um, so it's, it's, it's maybe one of the biggest follies uh, that we've engaged on in history. And, and time will show us that that is the case. Yeah, I'm so glad you're making that argument. One of the discussions I often have with some of my um, my pro-coal colleagues out in the policy analysis community is that um, we should be doing the CCS, and that is a legitimate role for government, but I've, I've always believed and remain and believe it to this day that the only thing CCS does is quiets the coal interests down long enough to get rid of them. Um, it's all a ploy to get rid of them. Now, there's another, real quick, there's another... Uh... Uh, the, the volumes are so huge, people don't realize what we're talking about. Uh, there's a plant in England called the Drax Power Plant that is the third largest plant in England, and they've converted two-thirds of their power from coal to wood because they think it reduces emissions. That's another story to discuss that. But each day, and, and so they want to capture the carbon dioxide from, from this wood burning, but wood emits vast amounts of carbon dioxide. Each day, they bring 475 hopper cars 
to drive these wood plants. They have their own rail system that goes around this plant, five concentric circles. And so 475 hopper cars a day put wood pellets into the plant. Now, when you produce carbon dioxide by burning wood, you take uh, uh, two oxygen atoms for every carbon atom from the atmosphere. And so the volumes are roughly double 475 hopper cars a day that you would have to capture and put underground. I mean, these, these things are just so huge uh, that, that this thing is never going to happen to a significant extent. Do you happen to happen to know where where they source their wood from? Do they get it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I've got a cartoon in uh, Green Breakdown that shows how they're getting wood pellets from uh, North Carolina and shipping across the ocean or from Canada, and they claim that this reduces carbon dioxide emissions. It's it's pretty remarkable. If you burn wood, many studies have shown uh, for for the same output of electricity, you produce about fifty percent more carbon dioxide than burning coal. So, and, and then, you know, you got the uh, transportation across the ocean and you cut down trees that uh, take 40 years to regrow. There is no reduction in CO2 emissions. It's, it's, it's all a, a goofy situation. <laughs> it's, it's so hilarious. Um, I have one more policy question for you because it's sure. something that often comes up and I know you address it, but I want to ask you while I have you here. Won't the hydrogen economy save us all? We've been we've heard about that. We see it again in the new um, power plant regulations that well, we're just going to burn hydrogen. Well, are we just going to burn hydrogen and everything be okay? And that's going to be a big thing. Yeah, there's a lot of money going into so-called green hydrogen today. Hydrogen basically doesn't exist in, in nature. It it's always exists when it when it is is bound into something. It doesn't exist by itself. But it isn't inexpensive. It isn't expensive. Uh, the cost of hydrogen is about a dollar per kilogram. But all of it today is produced uh, from natural gas, except in China, they, they produce it by using coal. And so this is how you produce hydrogen. Well, the green world says, well, we got to do green hydrogen. We can't produce it from natural gas and coal. We have to do it by running electric current through water so-called electrolysis and breaking the water apart into oxygen and hydrogen atoms. The problem with that is it costs five times as much <laughs> as, as it does to produce it from uh, coal or, or natural gas. But it, it's interesting, I spoke to the, the steel industry uh, end of last year, and uh, I was able to compute how much electricity you would need to drive electrolyzers that split the water into hydrogen and oxygen to produce hydrogen for the steel industry. And the amounts are vast. If you wanted to convert the steel industry from coal and natural gas, now today we have, we have 437 nuclear plants operating across the world. If you wanted to produce hydrogen to supply the, from, to drive electrolyzers for the steel industry, we would need to build 600 new nuclear plants just to provide hydrogen for that industry. Uh, well, now I'm like sold. That, something like that, like that is never <laughs> going to happen. And by the way, people also say the chemical industry ought to do the same. Well, that's much bigger than the steel industry. You'd need like 1,500 or 2,000 new nuclear plants <laughs> to, uh, to, to drive electrolyzers to produce hydrogen for the chemical industry. These numbers are so vast, they're never going to happen. They are going to break down. But right now we have uh, billions and billions of dollars from the 
uh, Inflation Reduction Act and other things that are try- going to people to try and produce hydrogen. Um, again, uh, a big distortion of, of uh, capital markets. Ian, when, when the money's gone, all of those firms that rose out of that, like we said earlier, will need bailouts. It's, it's going to be a mess. Let me say, Steve, I, th- I think your, your book is great. It's chock full of information. Um, it, it, as I said in the, in the beginning, you show the receipts so that people can look at this and know how to, how, how to discuss these issues, what to be skeptical of, um, what the answers to the, the big questions are so they can engage in intelli- intelligent conversation. I just think it's outstanding. But the, the big question, perhaps the most important question of all, is, <laughs> is where do listeners get your book? Okay, so uh, Green Breakdown is, on, is uh, at Amazon, or there are ebooks as well on Amazon, Apple, uh, Barnes & Noble. Um, or they can go to my website, Steve Gorham, G-O-R-E-H-A-M, uh, uh, dot com, and I'll send them a signed copy if they want to order one there. But anybody who has a uh, gas stove or a gasoline car or a uh, uh, uses electricity really needs to uh, read on what's going to happen to our uh, energy systems. I didn't know that I could get a signed one if I ordered it from your website. I bought it off Amazon. <laughs> okay. Man. Well, that's great, well, too. <laughs> I'll sign it for you, Jack, if you'd like. Great. great. Well, Steve, this was great. Um, I really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone who took time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the, the podcast, tell your friends and family and colleagues to check us out. Um, tell f- folks about us on your social media. Get, help us get the word out. And email us. Email us at thepowerhour@heritage.org. Steve, again, thank you so much. Do you have any final words? Nothing really, Jack. Uh, I just uh, hope we all have a time to see this play out and that uh, society comes back to a sensible, low-cost, reliable energy policy. We'll see. I think they will. And uh, thanks for inviting me on. Absolutely. Anytime. We'd love to have you back as a future guest. John, any final words from you? Yes, I do. Uh, Jack, have final thoughts here. Jack had mentioned, um, Jack, uh, Stephen mentioned the shower with a friend option <laughs> over in the great, of Great Britain. Uh-huh. I think that'd be a great thing for you to try out with your new shower <laughs> at your cabin. Oh, I could go in a million different ways <laughs> with that, but I'm just, I'll, I'll, I will let that stand let by that itself. There. I'll let that stand by itself. So there you go, folks. Remember to email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. Thank you, John and Steve Gorham. Thank you for being a guest. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.